0: We're in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to open your Bibles to chapter 10, we're gonna put in at verse 32 and read down to verse 45. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, and that's our text this morning, Mark 10, 32 through 45. The topic there, the 12 disciples of Jesus want to sit on thrones, but Jesus tells them they must first serve as slaves. The title of our message, 12 Jeers Toward Slaves. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Fellowship is sweet, the singing is wonderful, and we thank you for the word of God, the inspired word of God. We ask that your Holy Spirit, who is in us and who is with us, that he would be our teacher, that our hearts would be excited to receive your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said amen. Having a heavier waiter may cause you to eat more at a restaurant. That's the latest finding, scientific finding, from Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab, which over the years has produced surprising results about the unconscious factors that influence eating, like the background music and the ambient lighting. In the current study, diners with heavier servers were four times likelier to order dessert and they ordered 17% more alcoholic beverages. Speaking of waiters, you may have seen the recent story out of the United Kingdom, where a restaurant owner defended one of his waiters who suffers from autism after customers complained. He took the discussion over to Facebook where his defense of his waiter garnered over 19,000 likes. One person commented, too many customers think they have the right to treat hospitality staff any way they want to. They are wrong. A longtime waiter who writes a blog about server-diner relations likes to say, we are servers, not servants, I was thinking about waiters because Jesus uses a word for servant that can describe those who wait on tables. His disciples can't wait to sit on thrones, but Jesus tells them that they must wait for the kingdom of God on earth, and in the meantime, they will be expected to wait tables. While your waiter at a restaurant is a server and not a servant, a disciple of Jesus Christ is a server who is a servant. In fact, we're gonna be more than servants. A second word Jesus uses here is slave. Today's Bible study will help us to gauge whether or not we are servers or servants, and if we are servants, whether or not we are slaves. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you must wait to sit on your throne, and number two, you should wait by serving tables. Let's take a look at our wait Ray Charles may have had Georgia on his mind, but the 12 disciples of Jesus had the kingdom of God on theirs. They fully expected Jesus to establish the promised kingdom and to rule it from Jerusalem. If you keep in mind this preoccupation with the kingdom of God on earth, you'll understand why they kept ignoring Jesus, telling them that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. And so we pick up in verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Jerusalem is elevated, and so you are always described as going up to it no matter which direction you approach it from. They were on their way there to celebrate Passover. Jesus was out in front, He was then followed by the 12 and they were followed by a larger crowd. The 12 were amazed and I'm guessing from their discussion along the way that their amazement was in thinking it was at that time Jesus would establish the kingdom. The rest of the followers were afraid Jesus was in conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. In fact, they wanted to kill Jesus. He had been avoiding direct confrontation with them, but now he seemed determined to get to Jerusalem and to force their hand. It was sure to be explosive. And so Jesus then tells his guys for the third time that he is going to Jerusalem for the express purpose of being killed. He says in verses 33 and four, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. The name or title son of man comes from the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel. It describes the Jewish Messiah who would inaugurate the kingdom of God on the earth. In a previous study, we looked at Daniel and we talked about why the 12 were so confused. They believed that Jesus was the son of man, no doubt about it. They believed he was the Messiah who would rule. They could not reconcile the scriptures that described him as the suffering servant who must die. And so we showed you from Isaiah and different places that at the same time that the scriptures said that Jesus was the son of man who would rule the kingdom, they said that he was the suffering servant who would be killed. Jesus was very specific, he is very detailed about how he would be treated by both the Jewish leaders and by the Roman authorities. He didn't specifically say he would be crucified, but he didn't need to because it would have been understood. Rome did not crucify its own citizens, but it was how they executed all foreigners. And so if you were guilty of a capital crime, uh, uh, a Roman citizen was not crucified, but everyone else was. And so uh, Jesus was telling them he was going there to be uh, mistreated and crucified. And don't overlook where he says, and the third day rise again. Not only is that critical, but it tells us that Jesus was going to the cross by divine appointment to accomplish something cosmic, You see what it is, when we get to verse 45, to give his life a ransom for many. And so, up until that point, you could say, well, Jesus is just concerned that he might be killed in Jerusalem because of all the conflict, but then he says, and I'm gonna rise from the dead, which lets you know that this was a plan. It was God's plan from eternity past, and he was enacting it at this time. And so the cross is no afterthought. Every now and then on the History Channel or Discovery Channel or Nickelodeon for that matter, uh, somebody will do a thing about Jesus and they'll act like he was a, a misunderstood historical figure who uh, was killed before his time and had no idea what was going on. And Jesus says, I'm going here right now. And when we get there, we'll talk about how he comes into Jerusalem on the exact day that is prophesied by Daniel. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem and this is what's going to happen to me. And then I'll rise on the third day and everything will change. Now I've had folks ask for prayer, and probably you have too, because of various medical procedures they must undergo. As they describe what is going to happen to them, the poking, the prodding, the cutting, the chemo, I cringe and I commit to praying for them. I think, man, I, I, you know, I try not to act like I'm, I, I don't wanna go through that, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm sorry for you. I mean, you try and be stoic so that they don't get even more freaked out. I can't even imagine someone saying, in a few days I'm going to be condemned, spit upon, mocked, scourged, and crucified. Seems like it would make a deep impression, especially if it was someone you were very close to. And that's why what James and John do next is so incredible to me. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. John Stott calls this the most selfish prayer ever prayed. I'd have to agree and then be ashamed because I've prayed along these lines too. Uh, Not exactly these words, of course, because you're trying to hedge your bets, but definitely with this attitude. Just Lord, do whatever I want in this case. I mean, come on. Do whatever we ask. It's mind-blowing. It's the height of arrogance and folly to think I ought to receive whatever I would ask from God. They hadn't asked. They wanted a waiver to ask anything. That's what's interesting. They don't come and ask and say, please do it for us. They say, we'd like to have a waiver right now, special treatment, just a, a golden ticket. Whatever we ask you... You gotta do it for us. You know, sometimes we talk about people who approach God as if he were a genie in a bottle obligated to grant your wishes. This is pretty close to that. They're definitely saying, Lord, whatever we ask you, you're going to grant for us. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I'm thinking Jesus would have been right to just say no emphatically and to fire these guys and pick two other disciples out of the crowd that was following. There must have been somebody Instead, he was patient with them. I'm glad he was because we get to see their ridiculous request. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And in glory, they're talking about the kingdom of God on the earth, not heaven, their request was not completely out of left field. In the telling of this walk to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to the 12, he's recorded as saying this, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of of Israel. And so these guys, they had heard that, they were locked in on that, they were promised thrones in the kingdom of God. They did not realize that the kingdom was being postponed and would not be established until Jesus came back a second time. The whole crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven for an unspecified period of time thing, that was foreign to them. They, they were not expecting that at all. They did not yet grasp that the kingdom of God they would know in their lifetimes was the spiritual rule of God over the hearts of those whom they would reach with the gospel starting on the day of Pentecost and continuing right up until today. They did not yet grasp it would be an invisible spiritual kingdom that exists in the midst of the kingdom of the devil and the kingdoms of men. And so they, they were locked into this kingdom mentality Jesus said you guys are gonna sit on thrones Uh, and so these guys wanted their positions secured. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now the two images, cup and baptism, these are Old Testament pictures of being fully immersed in something, inside and out. Suffering was usually what they represented. Jesus was talking about his impending suffering, which is made clear a little later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked his father if it is possible to take away what? The cup of suffering. And so Jesus is saying, can you suffer the way I'm going to suffer? And so he's in a whole nother dimension than they are. They're thinking kingdom thrones and he's thinking I'm going to the cross and the kingdom is being delayed. James and John weren't thinking suffering. I'm gonna make up a word. They were thinking sovereigning. They were thinking of ruling over others from a throne. And they said to him, sure, we're able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. Guys, guys, of course they were not able to bear this suffering. Now, to his credit, John would at least be at the cross. He was the one disciple among the uh, 11 remaining disciples after Judas killed himself who was actually at the cross, the rest of them scattered. But he certainly was not ready to drink the cup of Christ's suffering. But later, they would be enabled After Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven to be immersed in and drink their own cups of suffering, James would get arrested and then be beheaded by Herod Antipas. John would miraculously survive being boiled in oil only to be exiled to the island of Patmos sometime in his 90s. And so these guys, they would know suffering, they would each have their own cup to drink uh, but they were way out of order here at this time. Verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus will sit on a throne in Jerusalem. In the revelation, in the midst of the tribulation, we read, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's not mystical, it's not spiritual, it's literal. In chapter 20 of the Revelation we read, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There will be a physical kingdom of God on the earth that will last a thousand years. Afterwards comes eternity in either hell or in heaven. James and John are still waiting to see which thrones they will occupy. We don't know which of the 12 thrones that are set aside for the disciples of Jesus uh, they will occupy. And Jesus is content to let his father assign responsibilities in the future kingdom of God on the earth. He wasn't gonna make a judgment about that. As far as thrones go, we too will sit on them. First Corinthians six, two and three, portray us as judging the world and as judging angels. Paul the Apostle in that passage is chiding the church because they can't uh, agree on things and because they're arguing with one another and they're suing each other in open court and there's all this contention and he says, hey guys, don't you realize that in the future we're going to sit in judgment over the world and even over angels uh, you, you ought to be able right now to solve your differences using biblical principles. And then in Revelation three twenty one, there's a time when Jesus sits on his kingdom throne and Christians are seated there with him. Uh, he says he will grant them to sit on his throne. And so we're headed for thrones ourselves. It's in our future to rule and reign with Jesus seated on thrones, but not now. Now the kingdom is the spiritual rule of God in human hearts that receive the gospel. We have work to do as servants, as slaves. And you should wait by serving tables. That's what the rest of our text is all about. Am I a server or a servant? If I'm a servant, am I a slave? Those are the questions suggested by Jesus' discussion with the disciples and so verse 41 and when the 10 heard it they began to be greatly displeased with James and John first of all I wonder how Peter felt among the 12 Peter James and John often formed an inner circle uh, with Jesus they were privileged to be with Jesus at times the other nine were not like the time he raised a little girl from the dead, and like uh, the time they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus in his glory. Now the two brothers, James and John, decide to ace Peter out of their little alliance. They vote him off the island, (laughs) essentially is what they do. They say, hey, when you're talking about thrones, there's the, there's the main throne, and then there's the right hand and the left hand. Those are the places of key power. Do you see Peter on any of those thrones, James? No, John, I don't. So we better get to Jesus and get this worked out. And so, so they vote him off the island. And the displeasure of the 10 tells us that they too had throne envy. They were upset that they'd been upstaged by James and John. I'm sure at least one of them thought, why didn't I think of that? He said, we're gonna sit on thrones. The first thing you think of, which one? Uh, I, I, I'd like to reserve my throne right now. And so they were greatly displeased, that, that, to say the least. I wonder if these guys ever fought, like punched each other in the face, you know? Brothers do that sometimes. Uh, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them? and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so he's setting them up, obviously. If you have any insight at all, you know that he's talking about you're doing the same thing that Gentiles do. And and that by itself would make a Jew cringe that he would be compared to a Gentile. But it turns out to be a really good, concise summary of the world in which we live. The world values working to get ahead, to be on top, to have authority over others who are seen as being under your command. And uh, to a certain extent, that works out in the world. It certainly works in the military. You can't really have a democratic military uh, where you say, hey, we're going to attack now. Well, let's take a vote on that. Uh, I just, you know, like, I want my vote to be heard on whether we're going to battle. So I'm not saying that's always bad, but the Lord is saying out in the world, this is how Gentiles act, they lord over those under them and they have positions that they think are power. Uh, Verse 43, yet it, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Remember, there is going to be a kingdom It's a kingdom where Jesus is ruling in the hearts of men, uh, and there is the church, which is where uh, believers congregate and gather. And so within this household of faith, Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in that kingdom, then you need to learn to be the servant of all. That's the paradigm that he's using. It, this attitude of ruling over others, shall not be so among you. Our spiritual life on earth now, while we wait for Jesus to return, is to bear absolutely no resemblance to the world's way of doing things. And so in terms of the church, uh, we should not have uh, that kind of a hierarchy uh, where people are ruling over others and and the churches shouldn't be seen as an organization so much as a living organism. By the way, a lot of what I read and hear about reaching those who are unchurched has to do with making the gospel more mainstream so that we don't scare people off. Churches are going out of their way to seem less like churches. Uh, Truth is, people ought to know that the gospel is radical, calling for and empowering radical changes. If I look just like my non-Christian neighbor in order to get them to come to church or to get them saved, what, what do they need Jesus for if we're all the same? They need to see that there is a radical difference in my values and how I live and what I do with my time and all of that, uh, that, that Jesus really is empowering that and driving that. And we don't have to dumb down all of our language and our attitudes and our activities. We don't need to turn our buildings into warehouses so that people will come in and think, hey, I stopped in because you're I'm looking for a church that's more like Costco than you know an old traditional church. The truth is when God and his grace are working on a person's heart to free their will to receive him, all of that kind of stuff doesn't matter, doesn't really matter what building you're in. It matters that people around that person have radically changed lives. And a lot of you have experienced this and you've been humbled by it because you think, I, I, I'm not doing anything really to serve the Lord that, that is super you know, sacrificial, but people seek you out and they come to you and they, they realize that they can ask you things and talk to you about the deepest issues of your life, your marriage, your family, those kinds of things because there's something spiritual going on with you. And so it doesn't really matter the trappings, you know, in one sense, as long as there's a genuineness. Jesus describes someone as being your servant. Does he mean for you to kick back and be served? No, of course not. He's giving you his way of evaluating people. The greatest Christians are those who serve you and others, not those who sit over you, ruling you, telling you what to do. This is why there are so many stories in churches about so and so who came forward and said, "I have this gift or this ability, and I'd like to be used by God." And you hand them a broom or a shovel or a rake or something like that, and you say, "You know what? The toilet needs to be plunged right now, and the paint needs uh, something needs to be painted, and you know this kind of a thing." And uh, you know, five minutes later, you find the rake you know on the curb, and they're down the street. Uh, looking for the next church. And so, uh, you know, people who don't serve shouldn't lead. Uh, It's just as simple as that. Uh, I don't care what your gifting is. Uh, Some of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have with people, I remember one in particular, I had to tell the guy, I said, hey, uh, he even brought in his wife so that I, uh, you know, would feel shy about it. And I, I apologized to her, but I said, hey, the problem is you want to lead and you refuse to serve. And let me give you 17 examples of that right now. And uh, it was hard, you know, it's really difficult. But we, we want to be servants, Jesus said. That's how you recognize real greatness. Not the person who's telling you what to do all the time, but the person who's exampling for you what to do, who's done it and is continuing to do it. Now, uh, the word for servant means Table server. It's what you would call a waiter. You're not to be a person everyone serves. You're to be the person who serves everyone. The word in Greek is diakonos. You immediately recognize that from it we get our word deacon. It's generally believed that the office of deacon originated in the selection of seven men by the apostles, among them Stephen, to assist with the charitable work of the early church as recorded in Acts chapter six, and so the widows were not being treated fairly, they weren't getting all of their uh, stipend, and so the disciples said, hey, or the apostles said, hey, we're, we know what we're supposed to be doing, we're serving by doing this, let's uh, appoint seven guys filled with the Holy Spirit uh, over this matter and to make sure that it gets done. Don't think of a deacon in the sense of a board of guys that sits around making decisions and telling other people what to do. That oftentimes is what a deacon board is at a church. Uh, They're the board that looks at the finances and decides what's going to happen. But in the Bible, the exact opposite uh, is true and of what Jesus just said is to be serving. Another association with the word diakonos is not letting the dust settle. The idea is you're to be so busy serving tables that it kicks up dust, and before the dust can settle, you're back to serve even more. I mentioned Stephen. He was the first martyr of the church age, stoned to death for his defense of the gospel. He drank the cup. He was baptized with the baptism. And so Jesus uh, you know, is talking about all of this Uh, in terms of being a servant and what it entails. Which leads us to our first question for introspection. Am I a server or am I a servant? Each of us must answer that for ourselves and be careful to not compare ourselves to others. Be practical, delineate what it is you do to serve the Lord, not just in the church, although serving in the household of faith is important, I try to be balanced about that. Sometimes churches only focus on the people serving in the church. And while that's a tremendous thing, uh, there are other things that we do to serve the Lord out in the world. Uh, and so we want to be honest about it and be practical and say, if, if, you, were, had, you, know, if you had to uh, put a resume down and say, what am I doing to serve the Lord? I'd be honest and practical. Just existing as a Christian isn't serving the Lord. You have to actually be doing something. If you say, I'm a Christian such and such, you fill in the blank. And then uh, you'd have to say, well then what are you doing in your activities to promote the gospel? Does anybody know you're a Christian such and such? And uh, how far are you going to try and reach others with the gospel? If you are doing those things, do you think you can quit serving anytime you want? Because if you're serving as unto the Lord, you can't quit. You need to be released by him. And I I think uh, even I have the idea that uh, I'm a at-will volunteer. I'll do that for a while, and then maybe I won't do it. And the idea that maybe the Lord hasn't released me from it is kind of a foreign concept. By the way, the Lord gets blamed for a lot of stuff in this area. I'm not led to do that anymore. Maybe. Uh, And I take that at face value. I mean, if people tell me they don't feel led to serve in a certain capacity anymore, uh, that's between them and the Lord. Uh, But it seems like people are led away from service pretty quickly when things get tough. As soon as things get tough and and it's difficult to serve, then say, you know, I just don't feel led to do this anymore. And so we need to be honest about that. I think we'd have to admit that there are those who are servers, not servants. And if that's you, just admit it and abandon that concept once and for all because Jesus is here saying, hey, in this kingdom that I'm talking about, that's going to exist between now and my second coming, I'm looking for servants. And Jesus wasn't done. Being a servant, that's a good start. But he said you really want to and need to be a slave. Verse 44, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. If you recognize greatness by seeing believers serving, then you ought to desire to be the lowest servant in every situation. You ought to desire to be a slave. Now here's a surprising fact. If you look in the Old Testament, in the King James Version of the Bible, you're gonna find the English word slave only occurs one time. I didn't believe it, so I, I ran my concordance in Esord on my iPad, and for sure, the word slave only occurs one time in the King James Version of the Bible in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word appears 800 times in the noun form, and 300 times in the verb form. So there is a word in the Old Testament for slave that appears 1,100 times, but the English Bible only translates it slave one time. If you go to the New Testament, you're gonna find the Greek word for slave 150 times in various forms. You will find it actually translated slave a very few times. These facts cause one scholar to comment, the word slave is the most important, all-encompassing and clarifying word to describe a Christian used in the New Testament, and yet whenever a Christian is in view, it is not translated slave. Now, we all have our images of slavery, and they are rightfully very bad ones, I guess, so this idea of being a slave is a hard sell, and the truth is the translators chose words like servant, and bondservant instead of slave. And, and so they soften it so we don't really understand. And, and quite honestly, when we read servant, sometimes we think a server. We think of a voluntary helper or a server. We don't even think of a servant, let alone a slave. Now, you've all heard about the Jewish bond servant. It comes from Exodus 21. According to the law, a man who couldn't pay a debt he owed had to become the servant of his creditor in order to work off his debt, or until the next Sabbath year, whichever was shorter, then all debts would be canceled. I'm for that system, by the way. Uh, If during the time of his temporary service, he concluded that his master was a good man to work for, he could voluntarily convert his term of service into a lifelong commitment. In doing so, he was agreeing to permanently subordinate his own interests in favor of his masters to do whatever the master required. It was the servant's choice to enter into a bond-servant relationship with his master, but once the agreement was made, he could not choose to undo it later. It was a lifelong commitment. If the master agreed, they'd go before the judges to make the arrangement official, and the master would drive an awl through his servant's earlobe and into the doorpost of the house. This was to signify that the servant had become permanently attached to the master's household. According to some traditions, a golden ring was inserted through the hole in the bondservant's ear to memorialize the event. So it was the invention of piercings at that time. But anyway, little side side light. Um, So this is the bondservant. So you go from being an indentured servant to a bondservant who essentially was a slave in the Jewish sense of that. I think the progression Jesus has in mind is that, going from servants to slaves because he knows that most of us will camp out in the servant area if we get that far, if we get past server to servant, but this idea that we're actually slaves, that everything we have and do and are belongs to Jesus Christ, that is something that as much as we want to think that we agree with, we have a hard time with. Thus the next question, are you a servant or are you a slave? Again, each of us must consider that for ourselves. But consider it we must because the church age in which we live is the time when Jesus needs slaves who understand that their lives are totally in his hands. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he hasn't already done. Verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom refers to a payment to effect the release of slaves or captives from bondage. The human race is held captive under the power of Satan and sin and death from which they cannot free themselves. Jesus' death paid the price that sets people free. The preposition for, used in Mark only here, reinforces the idea of substitution. It means instead of or in the place of. And so Jesus says he gave his life a ransom instead of you and I having to die. He took our place, the place of many. Now we're to understand many in the inclusive sense of all. It emphasizes how large a number derive a benefit from the single sacrifice of the one ransomer. I'm not just making that up because I want it to be true. In First Timothy we read, there is one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so the, price that Jesus paid on the cross is sufficient to ransom or buy out of slavery and sin and from Satan the entire human race. Now, I mentioned that Jesus and the 12 were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. There in the upper room, as they sat on cushions around that low oval table, uh, John, by the way, on his right hand and Judas on his left, uh, as they sat on that uh, around that table, there were no servants, there were no slaves to help them. Just the 13 of them. So typically in a, in a home setting uh, with the Passover, uh, wealthier home, there would be servants and lower servants, you know, slaves, and um, the guests would be served and uh, taken care of by those individuals. At one point, you know, Jesus got up took off his outer garment, girded himself up as a slave would, and he went around and he washed the disciples' feet. Very important that you have your feet washed in those days when you uh, were gonna eat, you you send your kids to wash their hands. In those days you had to have your feet washed because you wore sandals, Birkenstocks mostly, and um, your feet got dirty and nasty, and you were reclining kind of on a low table with pillows and your feet were kind of near other people. Um, and it was kind of, you know, you don't want to have somebody's smelly feet. Hey, did you just walk through that? Man, that looks like human excrement. I lost my appetite all of a sudden, you know? So there was, and imagine the job of washing feet. I've seen ceremonial foot washing. Have you ever seen ceremonial foot? We're gonna wash feet. You tell the church you're gonna have a foot washing ceremony, people come with the cleanest. they come with pedicures. (laughs) It, It will boost pedicures. In fact, I think pedicurists, are promoting foot washing in the church because it boosts their business because then you come with beautifully manicured, pedicured feet Um, because it's really nasty to wash other people's feet if they're just walking barefoot in the mud and stuff. And so Jesus got up to do that and it represented his decision in eternity past to voluntarily set aside the prerogatives of his deity and to take on the body of a man in order to serve the human race as a slave washing us clean by the power of his blood shed on the cross at Calvary. And so Jesus said, you wanna be great, be a servant, and the kind of servant you wanna be is a slave like me. And you see me washing your feet, which is bad enough, but it's symbolic of what I've really done in leaving heaven and taking on a human body so that I might wash you white as snow by my blood. And we know that Jesus was God's final sacrifice for sin. He is therefore called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At Passover, just as the lambs were being slain in the temple, Jesus died on the cross. It all comes together in Revelation chapter five, verses eight through 10. I'll read it to you from the English Standard Version where it says, and when Jesus had taken the scroll before living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The lamb who was slain ransomed everyone that believes on him makes us a kingdom that reigns on the earth. Now we often use the word volunteer volunteer. When discussing areas of service in the life of our church family, and we probably still will, but it would be more biblical to use the word slave. Wouldn't that be a hoot for a while? We say, hey, the uh, children's ministry has need of a few more slaves. <laughs> I think it'd be great, biblical stuff. I'll talk to the announcement guys, our tech department. Server, servant, slave. Rate yourself. Make the necessary changes. Let's pray.